So welcome along to our Lint study. That's what you want to call it. It's a little Lint practice. Maybe it's something you've taken up over Lint. Maybe it's something that you're deciding to do at another point. That's great. What this practice is going to be through the period of Lint is based on the book called What If God Wrote Your Bucket List? 52 things you don't want to miss. I might skip out a few because Lint's only 47 days and so we might miss out a few of those. But this book by Jay Palantir, Palantir, however you want to pronounce it, I can type the name up for you just so you know that, is What If God Wrote Your Bucket List? It's 52 things you don't want to miss. You're obviously aware of the idea of a bucket list. Literally, it's a list written down or mulled over in your mind of things you want to do before you kick the bucket. Your life's goals, if you want to put it another way. And over this course of the Lent period, we're going to be going through chapter by chapter of this book. They're very short chapters. They should only last a couple of minutes. I'm going to do seven at a time and so I'll put this up on a weekly basis but let me know, give me some feedback if you prefer it to be up daily, if you have problems with your podcast provider that it doesn't split up or it doesn't, if you pause it at the end of the day and it doesn't pick up there or if you have any problems like that just let me know and we can rearrange it. But we're going to start today which is Wednesday the first day of Lent on the 6th of March with our first chapter set goals but not in concrete. He writes... Digging through some old papers, I ran across a list of personal goals I had written almost two decades ago. Not for a bucket list for my life, but goals for a specific calendar year. I will not share the contents of that list here. After all, they were my goals, not yours. But I will confirm that some were very specific. Others were more of an attitude adjustment. Some were more one-time events. Some were achieved. Others were not. And some are still ongoing personal projects. Clearly I had taken the task seriously. All the goals had long-term relevance and real-life application. I didn't write score more than 2,500 points in Donkey Kong or videotape and catalogue every episode of Saved by the Bell. Most of the goals could fall into one of four categories. Spiritual growth, personal relationships, financial planning and career advancement. None of the goals were as simplistic as be happier, although checking off one of those goals would have provided a satisfying moment. As I recall, I pulled out the list a few times that year but didn't post it on the wall or make a personal pledge to review it weekly. Actually, this is the first time I've told anyone about the list. Now tucked in a file folder, the list still challenges me and perhaps mocks me just a little. On the one hand, every personal trainer or management consultant in the world extols the virtue of goal setting. Goals help you keep your eyes in the prize. Goals can drag you out of bed in the morning. On the other hand, your goals for your life are not nearly as important as God's goals for your life. In other words, please don't be surprised if all your careful planning and goal setting gets set aside by the master planner himself. The Bible reminds us we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. That's from Proverbs 16 verse 9. That idea is confirmed again and again in Scripture. The Tower of Babel was planned as a monument to the people themselves and as a result, God confused their language and the Tower was never completed. In the parable of the rich fool, Jesus tells the story of a wealthy farmer who planned to build bigger barns to hold his abundant crops. That very night the farmer died in his sleep. The night Jesus is betrayed by Judas, Peter attacks a soldier cutting off his ear. Jesus heals the soldier and allows himself to be arrested without further incident, knowing that his bigger purpose was to fulfil God's plan. So what's your plan? What goals do you have for the weekend or the year or your life? Goals are good. 
Specific goals are even better. Don't just write down work out more. Commit to specific times and places. Don't just write join a Bible study. Round up some friends and set a weekly agenda. Don't just say get my degree. Make an appointment with a college admissions counsellor. But don't be surprised if on your way to doing something good and admirable, God provides you with a surprising opportunity to do something great and amazing. And then there's a, at the end of each day, there's a, a checking the list little option which lets you review or think about what we've, what you've read and heard. As you discern God's bucket list for your life and set personal goals, be specific. Being wishy-washy is never good. Be bold. Forge ahead. Give yourself deadlines and five-year plans. Take risks. Challenge authority. Build consensus. Maintain high expectations. But don't forget also to expect the unexpected. Never stop praying. Never stop pursuing God's will. You might actually hear direct instructions from heaven such as Noah build an ark or Abraham put down that knife. Joseph marry that pregnant girl or Peter get out of the boat and walk in the water. God often uses the unexpected to get your attention, drive home a lesson and do the best work in you and through you. Expect the unexpected. And that's the end of day one. So we go straight into day two, which is entitled Drive Through the Storm. When I was 10, my family took a camping trip from the Chicago suburbs to New Mexico and back. Not sure about our exact route home, the miles we travel each day, or the locations of the campgrounds we stayed in, but I do remember this. The first day started beautifully, but as we travelled east, we ended up driving through a fierce thunderstorm. On the other side of the storm, we quickly set up camp and dry ground and cooked a campfire dinner as the sun was setting. Overnight, the rains caught up with us, pounding our six-man tent. We slept little, and in the morning we packed up our gear in the mud. Over the next four days, we repeated the same pattern. Drive through the storm, find a campground, pitch a damp tent, listen to the thunder and hope the tent doesn't leak, pack up in the mud, hit the road. My parents were troopers about the whole thing and that attitude seemed to rub rub off on us kids. I remember a sense of adventure and inevitability about the events of the coming day. There's the storm line, my dad would say. Should we stop now or try to get ahead of it, my mum would ask. Moments later, the windshield wipers would come on and we'd be surrounded with lightning bolts for the next hour or so. Oddly enough, surviving that storm five times was not the most significant memory of that trip. One of those muddy mornings happened to be a Sunday and my parents were determined to find a worthwhile church service for us to attend. Remember, this was before Google Maps and mobile phones. We broke camp, checked our maps, got off the main highway, asked around and finally made it to what looked like a nice little church. Just as the last cars were leaving the parking lot after the last service of the day. Still the six of us piled out of the car and dad led us into the surprisingly empty church. Without saying much he entered a pew and we joined him in a few quiet moments of reflection and prayer. Reflecting on that scenario I am sure my parents never knew the magnitude of the lesson they had provided for my ten year old self. We were not in that building out of necessity. No one was taking attendance. We were not there to listen to a minister or show off our Sunday go to meeting clothes. We were there because God is God. And we need to be intentional about spending time with him. Yes, of course, we can talk to God at any time. He's everywhere. We don't have to be in a building with a cross on the steeple and wooden pews. But for several days, we had been surrounded by clear reminders of God's power and presence. Whether they knew it or not, my mum and dad were making a statement to us four children and thanking God for his ongoing provision. 
Minutes later we were on the road and heading into another storm front, but that was a turning point for me. For the rest of my life I had a radically different perspective on how God and humans need to relate. The creator of the universe surely appreciates well-delivered sermons, worshipful hymns, polished shoes and a full collection plate, but the item he wants most on our bucket list is a humble acknowledgement that we can't do life without him. Through sunny days and stormy nights, he is our sole provider, protector and guide. And our checking list for today, a little thought at the very end, storms are coming and God allows the rain to fall on everyone, those who choose to follow him and those who don't. The best place to be in a storm is not on the highway or in a tent. The best place to be is in a house with a firm foundation. Matthew chapter 7 verse 25 confirms, The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against a house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. Amazingly, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you should occasionally choose to drive into the storm. You need not worry, you will be safe. Your life will stand as a witness to those who have mistakenly built their foundation on something other than Jesus Christ the rock. Build a foundation that withstands the storms. That's the end of day two. Day three on our Lenten series as we go through this book, What If God Wrote Your Bucket List, is entitled Become Like Little Children. Our fourth son, Isaac, always had a slightly healthier imagination than the rest of our crew. As a preschooler, he spent a season of his life experimenting with his designated superhero powers. More than once, he was observed tying a pillowcase around his neck, diving off our coffee table and wondering why that darn cape didn't work. By our fourth meal, child, we didn't spend a lot of time panicking about boys standing on furniture. Isaac was not a cartoon junkie, but like his dad, he did appreciate the finer points of how science was allowed to go slightly askew when Wiley Coyote, Bugs Bunny and other Warner Brother characters were involved. For instance, a character squashed by a falling anvil will walk away from the scene looking and sounding like an accordion. That's simple cartoon physics. Likewise, when stepping off a cliff, gravity doesn't apply until the individual suspended in space realises he is no longer on solid ground. Cartoon physics also permits two-dimensional black circular holes to be picked up and moved to alternate locations. And of course, when an individual is propelled with sufficient force through a solid wall, door or billboard, they leave behind a perfect outline of their body, including ears, whiskers and anything else they were carrying. Animators sometimes call such a character-shaped hole an impact silhouette. Isaac was at the height of his quest to test the veracity of cartoon physics the summer he turned four years old. He was helping his mum plant the small plot of land we call our garden and Rita watched as her curious son's attention turned to the garden rick they had just used to loosen the soil. He studied the six foot rick for several seconds and then before she knew it, Isaac had turned it over, teeth side up and stepped on it. Of course the wooden handle sprang up off the ground and clunked him in the forehead, delighted, he shouted, it worked, it worked. A four-year-old boy steps out in faith onto a garden wreck and responds with joy. That's something an adult would never do intentionally. That's because we're so smart. We already think we have all the answers, but the truth is we don't. Scientists desperately want to know how the universe began. They can't know, so they speculate. As enlightened adults, our sense of justice compels us to agonise over the question of why illness or tragedy hits one family and not another, and since we can't describe heaven, many of us choose not to believe in it at all. The Bible tells us that at some point in our life we need to be like a child who steps out in faith. 
It's a bucket list basic assignment to be curious, wide-eyed, dependent, trusting. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 18 verse 3. Afterward, once you have secured your citizenship in heaven, you can begin to ask those tougher questions. When you ask about the universe, God will reveal his majesty in the stars, stars he hung in place. When illness and tragedy strike and you look for justice, he will give you comfort in his promise that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. If you wonder what heaven is like, he will give you a glimpse of glory when you are in fellowship with other believers or loved by your friends or family. Again, God's clear answers to life's greatest puzzles may sound like nonsense to those who don't believe in him. On the other hand, mature believers will ask, hear and understand. When Bible scholars consider the issue of childlike faith, they agree. It's not being childish or ignorant or naive. Childlike faith means you finally see God as a trustworthy heavenly father. When you believers begin to mature in Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11 applies. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the things of childishness behind but once in a while, when you're tired or beaten up or when doubt creeps in, don't hesitate to come back to your Heavenly Father and say, let me rest in you. I'm checking the list for today. It's so satisfying to know that we can call on God the Father anytime, and because we know him and he loves us, his communication will be clear. Even if we don't get all the nuances, because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba Father. See God as a loving Father. That's the end of day three. Day four of our Lent series is called Be Last in Line. When I was in college, I made this declaration more than once. I will never live in a house with a white picket fence. That was one my way of taking a stand against a life of meaningless existence. Sure, I'd know I'd probably get married and have one or two kids, but a house in suburbia with a picket fence and a minivan? Not a chance. I was better than that. I was going to do great things. Mowing a lawn or cleaning gutters would just get in the way. For the record, I have never owned or erected a white picket fence. However, at the second house we owned, I came home from work one day to an image that could have rocked my world. My neighbour had installed a lovely and sturdy white picket fence, which meant the entire north side of my property now stood in mocking defiance of the personal pledge I had made ten years earlier. But you know what? It wasn't a big deal. I looked at that fence and laughed. By that time I had three kids and had surrendered to the conformity of wonder of suburban life, including owning a minivan. Seeing that fence helped me realise who I was and what my life had become. I had not sold out. I had not turned my back on a free-thinking, rebellious, counter-cultural lifestyle. Instead, I had found something better. My desire to do great things was still there, but when I looked at my family, I realised that my dedication to serving them was as great as any human ever endeavour could be. In one of the most amusing scenes in the Bible, all twelve disciples are walking along behind Jesus, arguing about which one of them is the greatest. As recorded in Mark chapter 9, while a group of men travel from Galilee to Capernaum, 
Jesus shares some pretty amazing stuff, even describing his inevitable betrayal, death and resurrections, but the disciples are barely listening. They don't get it. Instead, each of them has been staking claim to the head of the line when it comes to Jesus' sidekicks. Even though he knows their every thought, Jesus asks, What were you arguing about on the road? They get very quiet. Then Jesus delivers this stunner. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. The twelve disciples had been acting like children and Jesus had just pointed it out. To emphasise the point, he picks up a little kid who happens to be hanging around and adds, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Once again, Jesus turns conventional wisdom upside down. Want to do great things? Me too. Let's start with serving our families, including our kids, our spouse, our parents, siblings, nieces and nephews. Then we can move on to serving our neighbours and the rest of the planet. Live as a servant to all, and you'll not only feel great, you'll be great. Checking the list. To be great in the eyes of the world pretty much involves being first. First to reach the mountaintop, first at the box office, first in rushing yards or home runs, first in line at the bank, first place in whatever race you're running. But true greatness comes when you let others go ahead of you. Yes, we should absolutely strive for excellence. God wants us to use our gifts and give our best efforts in all that we do. But when glory comes, give it away. And you can check one more item off that bucket list. Put others ahead of yourself. Actually put everyone ahead of yourself, which makes you last. But that's okay because in God's economy, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Put others ahead of yourself. And that ends day four. Day five in this Lent series is entitled Reconsider Rules Carved in Stone. Since the dawn of creation, mankind has been on a quest for the meaning of life, and that's a good thing. Seeking answers to the core questions of who we are, why we're here, and how to make the most of our lives is a noble and worthwhile endeavour. But what if the answers already came and we cast them aside? What if Moses actually did talk to a bush, burning bush and carried two stone tablets containing ten perfect laws down from Mount Sinai? If God himself carved those ten rules for life and we missed it, then all we have left to guide us is our own limited and flawed perspective and a confusing array of half-truths and outright lies offered by the world. Does that scare you? It should, but it shouldn't surprise us. We humans love to flaunt our independence. Rules from God, we ask? Sure, he might exist, we'll say. But we don't really want him interfering in our everyday lives with a scent of antiquated rules. Rules are limiting. Rules take the fun out of life. Who wants to live inside a set of arbitrary and hard-to-understand boundaries? Those are valid points. If we're talking about man-made rules. But we're still asking, what if... When God makes rules, there must be a reason, and the reason would probably be to protect us and provide for us, which would be true even if we can't clearly see the long-term big-picture plan he has mapped out. So when it comes to items God would include in your bucket list, doesn't it make sense to at least take a closer look at the list of rules he has clearly provided? We certainly don't want to miss the obvious, so how about looking at the Ten Commandments as a gift from a loving father? Maybe then we would realise those rules were not limiting, but freeing. You've heard the analogy before. When a little toddler reaches for the stove, the loving parent says, No, hot, and might even slap the little hand about to be burned. 
The loving parent puts a fence around the swimming pool and insists the kid wear their seatbelts and enforces curfews. Often limits equal love. Again, what if the Ten Commandments creates a master grid for a life of satisfaction? When the Ten Commandments were first introduced to the world, the crowd waiting in the bottom of Mount Sinai were initially impressed, but it didn't last. As Moses was having a close encounter with the creator of the universe, the Israelites were melting their jewellery into a golden calf. Theologians suggest they needed to worship something that they could see and touch. Apparently a burning bush and voices thundering from the sky weren't enough for them. Here in the 21st century, though, we're way too sophisticated and intellectual to listen to millennia-old rules. Maybe that's what explains why the Ten Commandments don't get much attention these days. Unless some alleged religious fanatic is trying to post them in a public place, you don't hear much about them. The irony is that even most folks who would sign a petition in favour of keeping them painted on a courtroom wall probably couldn't recite them. Can you? Don't feel bad, you're not alone. A United Press international survey from a few years ago revealed that only 68 of 200 Anglican priests poll could name all Ten Commandments, but half said they believed in space aliens. So don't kick yourself if all ten don't come to mind instantly. Instead, be proactive. Open your Bible to Exodus 20 and do your own personal review. If it's been a while, you may be quite surprised to see that God's laws still apply today. More than that, following them opens the door to a life of great purpose and fulfilment for you and your family. Indeed, they might even be the secret to life. I'm checking the list. The Ten Commandments work. Human experience over the last three and a half millennia proves it. Even if they don't agree in the source, the world's greatest thinkers validate the principles, and common sense confirms them. Ten fairly clear rules. Understand them and embrace them, and this whole silly world might suddenly make more sense. Recognise the Ten Commandments. And that ends day five. Day six in this Lent series is entitled Go to Funerals. Every few years there's a news story about some guy who specified in his will that his last wish was to be buried in his car. The evening newscast treats us to a video of a 1973 Pontiac or 1941 Studebaker being lowered into an extra-wide grave. It's reminiscent of the Egyptian pharaohs who were typically embodied with all kinds of gear and provisions for their upcoming journey into the afterlife. On occasion, even a few mistresses, servants and pets were tossed in so the mummy wouldn't be alone along the way. These stories are news because they don't happen very often. Most funerals aren't about the dearly departed's possessions. Instead, the memories, conversations, tributes and photo albums more often focus on relationships. When a son or daughter delivers a eulogy, they don't talk about money spent on things. They talk about time spent together. Business associates may mention how Dan was a fierce negotiator or Linia was a tech wizard, but the reflections that mean the most will be about moments of kindness, generosity, availability and courage. Photographs on display are typically filled with people, not possessions. If a younger version of the deceased happens to be posed in front of a shiny Ford or classic VW, you can be sure there's a story to go along with it. If they're posing with a trophy, blue ribbon, craft project or string of walleye pike, whatever that is, you know the photo is not really about what they're holding. The photograph is capturing a moment as friends and fans celebrate an experience. 
Memorial services reveal that a person's character is more treasured than their cash value. If you attend a funeral where that is not the case, I'm sure you'll know the atmosphere is tainted with awkward silences, a lot of small talk and forced accolades. I wouldn't want to be lying in that coffin. Put another way, there are funerals that leave you blessed and funerals that leave you pained. No funeral is fun and there's great agony any time the service is for a younger man, woman or child whose life seemed to be cut short. But if you attend one with an attitude of respect and receptivity, there's much to gain. You'll see that personal glory is much too small a thing to live for. Honour comes in living and dying for something much bigger than ourselves. The ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus was onto something when he said, The art of living well and the art of dying well are one. If a person's legacy is measured solely by the size of their estate, conversations after their death will focus on how their fortune is distributed between heirs who happen to be suffering little remorse. The argument could be made that such a person wasted both their life and death. Matthew chapter 16 verse 26 confirms, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Attending a funeral should be in the bucket list of every thoughtful individual, not as some kind of morbid hobby, but as a reminder of the value of life and the inevitability of death. If I still had my 66 VW, I might consider trying to take it with me into the life afterlife. I think it would do well on those heavenly streets paved with gold, but sadly I could scrap back in 1975 after I rolled it onto an icy entrance wrap. My cars since then have been a long procession of nondescript hatchbacks and minivans. My funeral may not make the evening news, but in a very real sense, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you can make it. I'm checking the list. Live for something you can't hold on to and you'll never fear death. As Jesus said in John chapter 12 verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Fear not death. That's the end of day six. So we're on to day seven, the first, the end of the first week in this Lent series, based on the book What If God Wrote Your Bucket List, written by J. Palantiner, Palantiner, him. Um, you can let me know with some feedback in terms of does it work well as downloading a whole week, or would you prefer to download shorter segments or even daily? If you want to do that, you can subscribe to any podcast and it will automatically upload onto your phone. So you could do it that way if you want, or do these week long. Um, podcasts work okay so you can let me know about that and hopefully you've been enjoying them each day there's a little kind of thought a little story that jay writes for us and then a little checking the list box which is a basically a summary of all that he's written and some guidance for us but hopefully you've been enjoying them and hopefully even if you have taken up this idea of listening for a few minutes or taking a few minutes out of your day otherwise you might be just listening to the radio or you might just be doing nothing or you might have filled it with something else if you've taken up these three or four minutes every day just to listen to this book, to think about what we need to do in our lives, to think about how we live our lives, then that's a real positive step and hopefully you find this beneficial in it. Uh, and it's never too late to start. Even if you've missed a few days, you can catch up pretty quickly. Uh, and each week's about half an hour or so. So you can do it in one, you can do it for a few days. That's up to you. Anyway, 
Today, the last of our week one is entitled Love and Be Loved. Newborns need to be held. They need to be cuddled and swaddled. They need to feel the warmth of skin and skin and the rhythm of their mum or dad's heartbeat. Think about where they just came from. Pediatricians confirm newborns actually require a significant amount of physical contact every day. If they don't get it, they suffer from a withdrawal condition known as failure to thrive. Also called maternal deprivation syndrome, it's a physiosocial condition common in understaffed orphanages around the world and it can be fatal. The health guide from the New York Times explains the causes, symptoms, treatment and outlook. Causes. The majority of causes of failure to thrive in infants and young children under two years old are not caused by disease. Most cases are caused by dysfunctional caregiver interaction. Poverty, child abuse and parental ignorance about appropriate childcare. Such cases are considered non-organic failure to thrive. Symptoms. Decreased or absent linear growth. Lack of appropriate hygiene. Interaction problems between mother and child. Weight less than the 5th percentile. Treatment. The treatment of failure to thrive is a major undertaking which requires the input of a multidisciplinary team including physicians, nutritionists, social workers, behavioural specialists and visiting nurses. Outlook. With adequate attention and care, full recovery is, is expected. However, neglect severe enough to cause failure to thrive can kill if it continues. Years ago, travelling as a radio producer for the Josh McDowell Ministry, I had the rare privilege of visiting several orphanages in Russia and will never forget watching a single nurse care for a ward full of infants. With so little human contact, it's hard to imagine those babies growing into healthy adults who reach their God-given potential. Without appearing hopeless and heartless, I'm hoping to spin a positive lesson here. If diminished interaction leads to failure to thrive, then conversely, extensive physical contact helps babies develop into kids who grow tall and strong, interact lovingly with others and reach their full potential. I can tell you firsthand that love is a powerful force. Over a period of several years, my wife Rita and I welcomed ten foster babies into our home, mostly newborn. Some had been exposed to cocaine in their mother's womb, which meant these babies were essentially recovering addicts. I will never forget our son Max holding one of those precious newborns while she was experiencing severe withdrawal tremors. This was when Max was an all-conference fullback, a state-qualifying wrestler and starting catcher for a baseball team that placed fourth in state. He was a tough kid with a high threshold for pain, but watching that baby shake uncontrollably because of a birth mother's selfish choices broke his heart and made him a little angry. After the tremor subsided, he gently handed the tiny girl to my wife and then growled, how could a mother do this to her baby? The good news is that love never fails, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. My wife and kids literally loved the residual cocaine right out of those babies. The boys and girls we've been able to keep track of over the years are doing very well. All of which points to the desperate need we all have to receive love. And also to give love. When you snuggle or kiss or sway with a newborn, love is flowing both directions. When a friend listens and talks you through a personal crisis, you are receiving and giving love. When a daughter visits the Alzheimer's units in a nursing home to spend time with her mother who doesn't even remember who she is, that's still two-way love. Pure, unselfish, mutual love is proof of a relationship with Christ. 
John 13 verse 35 says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The simple and single best example of love flowing two directions is between man and his creator. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 19, the Bible identifies the only reason we can love at all because he first loved us. Everything that comes from God flows out of his love for us and the only reason we can offer authentic love to anyone is that God gave us that ability. Knowing how to love and freely accepting love are amongst the most important items you will find on God's bucket list for any of us. If you didn't learn that in your first year of life, then spend some time right now considering how much you have to give and how worthy you are to receive. Which brings up a major stumbling block to many people that they have with God. They think, how could God love someone like me? I'm not worthy. My own dad doesn't love me, so I'm not sure God could. The answer to those concerns is surprisingly simple. How can God love you? Because that's what he does. It's who he is. God is love. He knows everything about you. He knows your fears and your dreams. He knows your past, present and future. He knows your achievements and failures and yet he still loves you unconditionally. He has a wonderful plan for your life and has given you specific gifts, experiences and abilities to make that plan come true. He loved you so much that he created you. And he loves you so much that even though you've chosen many times to turn your back on him, he still sent his son to pay the price for that sin by allowing Jesus to be nailed on a cross. Then three days later, Jesus was resurrected from the dead to claim victory over death and open the gates of heaven to you. Most amazing of all, he loves you so much that he would have done all of that even if you were the only person on earth. I'm checking the list. Love is the greatest paradox of all. The term is used to describe how we feel about cars, sweets, pizza, celebrities, pets. We use the word selfishly when we shouldn't. And we don't use it during situations when we really should speak it out loud and clear. The word is more than a word, it's more than a feeling as a noun, it's a gift as a verb, it's a responsibility. Love may very well be the ultimate test we all need to pass. First John chapter 4 says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So love and be loved. That's the end of day seven and the first week of our Lent series or Lent podcast on what if God wrote your bucket list, what would he put on it? Hopefully you've been enjoying it as we've gone through. You can drop some feedback or put some comments into the Facebook page and we'll pick up again next week uh, and we hope you enjoy your, your pancakes and have been whatever you've given up or taken up for lent we hope you've been doing it successfully through this last week and all hand and stop on that point and grace and peace to you during this period of lent